You ready to get started? Let's do it. You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off. Had an accident. Got his tree and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20, 10. Clear of conflict. Okay, welcome back after a long break. This is an aviation history podcast which looks at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mishaps, and just crazy events. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator of this podcast. If you want to see pictures of the events and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram where you can see the pictures I post about the episodes, both in the carefully labeled story highlights and in the gallery. And that is at aluminum tube on Instagram. You can also email me your ideas or any of your feedback at aluminum tube podcast at gmail.com. Please visit altubepodcast.com or aluminum tube podcast.com. And there you can listen to episodes, read about our co-hosts and find the archive of all my stuff. I do ask that you please tell your friends about the show and leave a review. That helps a lot. If you've listened to other episodes, you already know that I already have that I Mm, if you've listened to other episodes, I think I can get this out. Do you think I get this? Out? <laughs> I think I get it out. If you've if you've listened to other episodes, you already know that I always have a co-host who is not an aviation expert, and their role is to ask questions that will help you better understand what actually happened. So today I have a returning co-host, and it's Aaron O'Connor. Yay! I haven't had you as a co-host since episode twenty-four in December of twenty twenty-one. Damn, time flies. It's been a long time. I know. We have a lot to catch up on. Let's so do, do I. You go first. What's so, happened in three yeah, years so of my where life? Yeah, so where have you been since 2021? That was kind of COVID times, right? Not Yeah. Well, that was wrapping December 2021 was probably... Kind of wrapping up, Like I a think. good six months into the reopen of life. Yeah. And then, you know, where were you then and where are you now? Just give, a, yeah. give me a little quick recap. I'm still in Brooklyn. I was in Brooklyn at the time. Still working remotely mainly, doing a little agency work is back in place. Which Travel is, is back. Which That's is really exciting. awesome that yeah. you are working remotely. Travel is back. Yes. Oh, totally. Now yeah. I feel like an aviation expert because I'm on planes again. Oh, man. I don't And even... I think I just didn't travel as much as I wanted to pre-COVID because, you know, you have this idea of I'll travel when, I'll travel when. And then, you know, when the world is pretty much close to shut down, you're like, well, time is now. I think that I see this in airlines you know the airline i work for goes crazy we are absolutely we're understaffed we're hiring pilots all the time and people are spending more money on travel now than they are on retail goods and so that was like an economic point recently about like how target stock is down because people are not spending their money on fixing up their houses they're spending money on experiences yeah, I think definitely. And, you know, I have a background in entertainment and something that's taking a big dip is tech and gaming because, you know, 2021 was probably at their peak and now people are getting out from behind the screen. And I think that that is showing itself by the influx of travel. Well, I fully support that, as you know. Mm-hmm. It yeah. helps. I'm on your team. I'm it on helps, your side now. It also helps pay my bills. Yeah, that's, so. I'm, I'm glad I'm helping you pay your bills because awesome. I'm enjoying it. 
Well, let's see what's happened with me. So if you listen to episode one, I was a 787 first officer. Since then, I was an Airbus captain. Then I was an Airbus LCA, which is a line check airman or a line check pilot. And then I decided that I didn't like that airplane anymore because of the places it goes. And I decided to move to the Boeing 737, which is actually the airplane we're talking about today. But um, it's for schedule and stuff like that. Um, Let's see. I'm getting married in October. And you're invited. So you're going to join us in Italy, I hope. Uh, Duh. So yeah, big updates on my end. But you're just, you're still doing the same thing. I'm doing the same thing, but now I'm traveling and one of them is your wedding. I love that. It has been a long time since I recorded. And the reason for that is because when I was on the last fleet of the Airbus fleet, I couldn't get days off. I couldn't trade trips. I also couldn't get good trips. My schedule wasn't as good. And then I was an LCP, which is a line check pilot. And that really blew up into a a whole monster and I just didn't have time because as you know these things take me a while to write so so I was feeling overwhelmed yeah for sure with I'm, shitty flights right exactly and a ton of work and um lots of like overnights and you know like I said Omaha and Buffalo and what? right and places that I don't really want to be Mm-mm. just Omaha I mean, Nebraska exactly Sounds oh my delightful. goodness delightful in the oh. dark Cold. Des Moines. I can't even count how many nights I spent in Des Moines, Iowa. It's like Des Moines. I just uh, it's like that I got tired scene of it. in Wayne's World when they're like, "We're in Delaware." Exactly. It's in Delaware. <laughs> so the good thing is, I have my first—well, not my first flight, but one of the, you know my first schedule. So I get 25 hours in Punta Cana. That's awesome. So the 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 move is already paying off. Oh hell yeah! So hmm, Omaha, Nebraska. Right. Punta Cana, Dominican Republic. Exactly. I will take the Punta Cana, please. So that was really the reason that I switched, and I'm glad that I did. And anyway, it, and it also gave me enough. To, it's also given me enough time to to write. Cool. So, it sounds like nothing good has happened in your life since we spoke last. So I'm really sorry. It's been slow. And oh my crappy. goodness. Yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but so that's out of the way. You want to dive right in? Let's do it. Okay. So the airplane. We're going to be talking about the Boeing 737. The 737 has a very long and a little bit spotty history, but it's so common. And I'm kind of surprised that I hadn't talked about it before, that it just hadn't come up in one of my podcasts before, because it really, really is the most ubiquitous jet right now in the world by numbers, but also by like operators. They're just more of these than anything else. Now, aren't they like in the news? Are we seeing they are blips on the Boeing radar? Yeah, we had um, recently. We had the door come off of casual, a casual, casual just door, door departure. Door yeah, on a on a uh, on a seven thirty seven Max nine. That was also the airplane that they had the problems with the MCAS, and there were two crashes. There was a Lion Air and an Ethiopian Air. So Boeing again seven thirty seven spotty history, but. Very popular airplane, very reliable airplane. Well, would you say that it has a spotty history because it's so widespread? Like it is the majority in some ways? I would like to say that, but the problem is if I say that, I would be wrong because the Airbus, Airbus has a comparable aircraft called the A320. And the A320 does not have the same spotty history and its numbers of production are extremely close. So if you're going to be on a narrow body airplane these days... You're really going to be on an A320, which is an Airbus A320, the airplane I just got off of, 
or a Boeing 737. This Whoa. is really like the two types of airplanes as far as like short to moderate legs. That's yeah. what you're going to be on. <sighs> There's a lot of factors, but I think... Do I get to say, like when I book my flight, do I know what I'm flying on? No, you do not. So I don't get to say. Well, in a way you do because you can see what you're flying on, but you're sometimes you're just stuck. Yeah. By the time it, I get there, I'm in. What am I going to say? No. Exactly. I mean, when you book it, it'll probably tell you what kind of airplane and then you could like make a choice. But there, if you're going to fly like, let's say you're going to fly on Delta, that's the one airplane they operate on that route. So now you're going to have to move to a different company. If it's Southwest, they operate one type. So you don't get a say. If it's mm. United, again, you might operate one airplane on that route, but nothing else. So sometimes you just... I just got to go with it. You got to go with it. But I mean, in truth, they're all very safe extremely safe. In the last two years, there has not been a single crash of a commercial jetliner in the world. That makes me feel better. The last two years have been the safest years in aviation history. Why do you think the last two years have been? I think we're reaching apex of aviation safety. I really do. I think we have learned our lessons so well. Pilots are very well trained. We've we've now caught up to, like I said, like the apex. We're there. We, we've kind of almost corrected all the risks. Yeah. Now there are inherent risks always. The door came off. This is not something that Casual. Alaska Airlines did. And honestly, there were only a few airframes that had that th there was like bolts missing it was an assembly flaw oh it was a human flaw it was a human error oh. that they forgot or put in the wrong hardware to a door that wasn't being used and it was a plug so the door came off because the wrong hardware was used got it got it that's a human error that it would be something very difficult to control for gotcha. so there's always going to be those small things and i call that small because nobody died the airplane didn't crash. I saw the videos. Again, casual. It was like driving in a Jeep with no door on it. it I was, couldn't believe I, it. I could Everybody is just that. sitting there, like literally How were casually. They not freaking out. Like, See, what were they on? I would love to know. <laughs> I want some of that. A little pre flight Zanny, my friend? Probably. Yeah. So that so that kind of is like we kind of have reached almost apex safety in a way. And now there will be a crash. There will be. Listen I'm, to this I'm podcast. Saying, what date is it being released? Yeah, I'm not saying there's not going to be a crash. There will be a crash. We haven't corrected all the risk out of it. But back in the 90s and 2000s, airplanes were crashing all the time. And if you go back farther than that, it was even more common than that. That's wild. So we've gotten to the point where we're just, we're so good at what we do. Thank goodness. Thank you for your service. But the Boeing 737 has a really long history. So let's dive into that real quick. You go for it. The 737 is a narrow body passenger jet. Narrow body means... Not full body? <laughs> like your wine. Uh-huh. Um, narrow body means that when you walk into the airplane, there's one aisle down the center. Oh, okay. They don't have that little island in the middle with two lanes on either side? That's it. That's Got called a wide it. body. A wide That's body a would wide have body. two, would have two, and a narrow body has one aisle down the center. Got it. Um, it's a narrow body passenger jet. It was originally developed to supplement the Boeing 727, which is long out of service now, on shorter routes. And financially thinner routes financially thinner routes financially thin like we want to operate a cheap airplane because we're not making a lot of money on this route what that's a thing oh yes very much they want to operate a, a cheap airplane or a small airplane to save fuel it's the house wine it really flight. is yes noted okay so that's where the, how they designed it 
And it was supplementing lift for a bigger airplane. That airplane is no longer in service. But anyway, the 737 has two engines under the wing, and it's the same width as Boeing's very first jet, the 707. Oh, there have been several models then. 707, we're at 37. Yeah, there have been several models. In fact, there is only one number left in the Boeing line of aircraft. So there was a 707, a 717, 27, 37, 47, 57, 67, 777, and a 787, there is only a 797 left. And after that, Boeing says they're going to use letters. Oh, I thought they were like, we're done. We've we've completed our masterpieces. We're going to go to the 800s now. No, they, yeah. th- they said that they were predicting to use letters as Wh- the center. Uh, why? So it would be a 7A7. Oh. Or a 7B7. I don't know I why Boeing all does of this. that. As I, somebody that lives in an apartment that is a lettered apartment with a non-lettered apartment with the same numbers immediately next to it, <laughs> y'all are lazy. It is lazy. It's Get very it lazy. Uh, it's very lazy marketing. It's confusing for the Postal Service. It will now be confusing for our records in history when it comes to aviation. This is not... You are not, not wrong. A, you yeah. are not wrong about that. Complaint card to be filed. So, but anyway... They use the same tooling from the 707 to build the 737. Saves money, but they just built it smaller. It's typically configured in two classes with first class seating where you're two on the aisle and two, so four total, and then a larger economy class where you're three aisle and three. Okay. Okay, so six abreast in the back and four abreast in the front. It was initially designed in 1964. Cute. The initial 737-100 made its first flight in April of 1967 and entered service in February of 1968. Its launch customer was Lufthansa. What's that? Lufthansa is the flag carrier of Germany. Oh. The lengthened 737-200 entered service in April 1968. So they've already started to just stretch it out and make it longer. (laughs) Um, Genius. Exactly. And... With each evolution, the seating capacity got larger and larger, and the fuselage just got longer. It grew in length, but it never grew in girth. It just got longer and longer. Is that how engineering works? That is how aviation engineering works. That doesn't typically. even work in baking. Like, no, but that they take, they just start adding sections, front and rear, and, and they're balancing the airplane. And they, so they add a little bit in the back, add a little bit in the front, add a little bit in the back, add a little bit in the front. Yikes. In 1984, the 737-300, and 500 variants. See, we're at these numbers again. It's, it's just, just like, come on. What is this? Whose line is it anyway? Pretty much. They were upgraded with more fuel-efficient engines and seating up to 168 passengers. Then in 1997, the 737 Next Generation. Next yeah, Gen. Next Gen. And Star it was Trek. Just, oh, that, that is about when Star Trek Next Generation. Yeah. I don't even know if that's related, but probably. It but, is now. So they they changed the avionics. They made the models again, updated the engines, and they made the wing bigger. They upgraded the cockpits, and they upgraded the maximum seating capacity now to 215. Okay. And they had the 600, the 700, the 800, and the 900 models. Just, just get ready. We're just going along, right? Then in 2017... Boeing introduced yet another iteration of this same 1965 design. And here's where the controversial 737 MAX 789 and eventually the 10, although the 10 hasn't been certified yet, 
comes in. So these new versions could seat anywhere from 130 to 210 people. They entered service in 2017. We're going to come back to the controversy in a second. Let's finish the model history. The U.S. military operates many Boeing 737s in various configurations from airborne radar platforms to submarine detection platforms and a whole variety in between. Boeing runs a program to convert older airline units into freighters. The airplane essentially is a do-it-all kind of mid-size airliner. Carries passengers, does military stuff, can haul freight. The 737 is starting to sound like the Spider-Man franchise. Like, we've seen it several times. We enjoy it. Right. We know we like it. Let's just revamp it Let's just a keep revamping bit. it. Let's that... just keep remaking it. You are exactly correct. But as of today, everybody liked it so much that there are 11,700 Boeing 737s that have been delivered. And until 2019, the 737 was the highest selling commercial aircraft in history. But it was surpassed in 2019 by the competing, we talked about this for a minute, the A320. But Boeing maintains the record in total deliveries, meaning the order book for the Airbus. The order book for the Airbus is thicker, but Boeing has delivered more 737s. So basically, Airbus has more orders, but Boeing is able to churn them out faster. Ah, okay. So there's more, still more 737s out there. So let's go back to that controversy. The 737 MAX, which was designed to compete with the A320neo. This is just an updated A320. Again, it's that same thing. We li- It's Marvel, right? We like mm-hmm. the one franchise, and then we just go to the other franchise. We revamp that. We revamp this, and they compete against each other. This mm-hmm. is This is all we're doing. The... 737 Maxes were completely grounded worldwide between March 2019 and November 2020. So over a year following two fatal crashes, the crash of Lion Air 610 and the crash of Ethiopian Airlines 302. Damn. Okay, this was due to the failure of a, a subsystem of the speed trim system known as the MCAS. We don't, we don't need to go into technicals about it. In these two incidents, which I'm, I will cover later in the podcast, the aircraft automatic trim system failed and made the aircraft start trimming on its own. What does that mean, trimming? So the tail of the aircraft, the horizontal stabilizer, moves up and down as the aircraft gains and loses speed and changes configuration. So the movement is the trimming? Correct. Okay. The movement is the trimming. When we pull back on the yoke, we move the elevator, which is kind of a little a little flat behind that. But what's mainly involved in balancing the airplane and keeping it at altitude and keeping it flying straight and level is the horizontal stabilizer trim. And that's what we're talking about here. So when the horizontal stabilizer trim runs away, it means it's not being commanded by the pilot. It's just going to its its keep going until it hits the stop. Okay. But it but eventually it cannot be overpowered by the pilots anymore. It would have to be manually trimmed. So you would have to turn it off, take the power away from it and then manually trim it back. It gets a little bit technical, but we don't have to worry about it. The reason there's controversy is cuz there's controversy surrounding what happened to those two airplanes, but there's a lot of controversy surrounding the actions of the crews mostly. In any case, a lot of people died. 157 people. Did everybody die on each plane? Both planes. 157 on the Ethiopian and 189 on Lion Air. Oh my goodness. I I can go into details here if you'd like, but long story short, Boeing was somewhat at fault for a faulty system. And I may get some heat about this, but 
the flight crew was also equally at fault. Okay. Like I said, I may get some hate mail for saying that, but I'm certified to fly this airplane. I fly it as a captain. Like all incidents and accidents we cover on the show, it's not simple. It's very nuanced. This is not what we're talking. We're not going to talk about MCAS today. It's very nuanced. It is both the fault of Boeing as an organization. Mm-hmm. Each individual aircraft had its own failure and the crews did not respond in an appropriate way. It's, so yeah. it's a very kind of a multi... Yeah, it's not a singular cause. No. It's, yeah, it's a combination of everybody's input. And we talked about this because about three weeks ago, a 737 MAX 9 had an explosive decompression where an unused aft emergency exit panel came off in flight. Yeah. This was due to a failure to proper, properly secure the panel. The bolts came out and the 737 MAX 9s were again grounded. They are no longer grounded as we speak. Well, they it was a quick turnaround. They identified the problem. That's it. They were Human grounded. Error. It took four to eight hours to fix each unit. They, they went in. They did an inspection. They said, this is what's broken. Fixed it. I have complete faith in the airplane. I'm about to fly one over the Atlantic Ocean for four hours. So No issue. Not honestly, worried about the door flying off. No, not at all. Not worried about the door. So here's the rest of the controversy, though. And it's a little bit more nuanced. The 737 was never meant to last as long as it has. Then why is it still here? It was never meant to be. We talked about stretched and re-stretched and re-engined. It's like a double wide. New avionics. It it really is. It's like a double wide. You've now put a second bathroom on. Exactly. We're calling it a two better. Exactly. No, it's not what it was made for. Here's what happened. Capitalism really dictated that in order to satisfy (gasps) all the airlines around the world. (laughs) Boeing... Keep making that airplane. The reason for this is because if you replace an airplane that's as prolific as the 737, every pilot who works for that airline has to be retrained and recertified on the new type. So Got for it. each type of airplane, you have very specific certification rules. Like I just came off the Airbus. That does not certify me in any way to operate a 737. I had to go to school for six weeks to be certified to operate the 737. And you've been flying for how long before you wanted to move to the 737? Uh, oh boy. I'm in tw- I'm at 24 years now. 24 years and you still had to go back to school for 6, six weeks. weeks for recertification. Absolutely. And then I have to fly with a essentially with, with the you. job I did, mm-hmm. the, the a line check pilot. Yeah. But that means for the companies you can imagine that means new simulators. And simulators about 30 million dollars each, so if you make a new airplane, you got to get new simulators, 30 30 million dollars a pop, lots of retraining. Also, for an airline like Southwest, who only operates 737s, that would mean a mixed fleet for them. Their mechanics are trained. Their dispatchers, they know everything about the 737. So, Russell, it's Southwest. I know. So now we're going to add an Airbus? No. This yeah. is why Boeing just keeps releasing the same model again and again. They're just responding to the capitalist need. Yeah. That's it. $30 so- million dollars for a for simulator. simulator. For yeah. a singular airplane. That That's you right. now need to certify hundreds of thousands of people. Yes. I get it, man. Around the world. You had me at $30 million for one piece of machinery. So you can see that Boeing is extremely reluctant to replace the 737 with a new type. Fine. I know. But they just keep updating the airplane as they've done over the last 60 years now. The 737 MAX 10 isn't even out yet. It'll be the largest 737 ever. 
but it's still a 737. So all of those pilots can now get into that max that double 10. double wide just got a third bathroom. And an extra bedroom. A washer dryer. That is correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if Delta wanted to add it to their fleet, they just add it. And the same pilots who flew the 500 back in 1997 can now just step right into the max 10. That's wild. Kind of neat that they can do that, but also you can see it problematic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Today, we're talking about a company called Helios. Okay. Helios Airways, it was a low-cost airline that was established back in 1998. On May 15th, 2000, it operated its first charter flight to London Gatwick from Cyprus. Okay. A charter flight is where like a group of people, like a sports team or a travel group, hires an aircraft just for themselves. Okay. So but they don't own it. It's no. just like a, you know, they're No, no, they it's it will be operated by a company. Got it. In fact, there's no there's nothing that says you can't start and sell charter groups. So if you if your whole family said, "You know what? Let's take a whole family vacation and you got 150 people, you could go to Delta or United and say, "I want to charter an airplane." And they would go from where to where. They'd give you a price and you'd say, "Cool." I had no idea, but it makes total sense. They will do it independently. Absolutely. We do it. We do those kinds of flights. And they're actually, they can be fun because they can be all kinds of different tour groups. They can be sports teams. They can be uh, rock bands where they're traveling with like all of their all I'm of in. their support personnel. Like, yeah. I can get 150. We're doing it for the wedding. Absolutely. <laughs> there you go. Awesome. That's going to be an expensive one. It operated from Cyprus to Gatwick. But in general, they operated scheduled and charter flights between their home country of Cyprus, which is an island nation off the coast of Greece, if you didn't know. I'll be there in April. Awesome. I know. I'm excited. You're going to, you're going to Cyprus in April? I am. Oh, my goodness. This is perfect. I know. I didn't even realize. Well, now you know. Um. They operated from Cyprus to many European and African destinations, which included places like Athens and London, Manchester, Amsterdam, Edinburgh, Prague, Cairo, cool. Paris, Dublin, Warsaw. Man, we're so remote in the United uh, States. We really it are. We can't, I know. We can't just be like, oh I'm going God. to Warsaw. Yeah. Like, even Hawaii, a part of our, quote unquote, part of our own United States. It's like freaking forever. It's 11 hours from yes. here. Yes. Oh, my God. Nobody goodness. talks about that enough. When I was... 10 hours in flying to Korea. They're like, there's Hawaii. I was like, you're shitting me. There's Hawaii. Y'all are selling me this this on every YouTube ad. And yet it's a 10 (laughs) and a half hour flight. Get out of here. Okay. So the company was, uh, it was headquartered in, on the grounds of the Lanarka International Airport in Lanarka, Cyprus. That's kind of the main airport in Cyprus. Okay. They were initially quite successful. And in 2004, Helios Airways was acquired by a travel company called Libra, just a travel marketing agency. They were also from Cyprus. The flights ceased on November 7th, 2006, because the company's aircraft were detained and bank accounts frozen by the Cyprus government. We'll talk about that in a bit. So you ready to talk about the date? Let's do it. So August 14th of 2005. Okay. So on this date, they're operating a Boeing 737-300. It was built around 1985. Um, it's 20 years old. Airliners, they normally have a useful life of about 30 years. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So this yeah. this one's, it's in middle age. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like it's crazy bad or anything. It sounds like it's old. Like you would probably wouldn't drive a 20-year-old car around. You might, but, but flying a 20-year-old airplane is not a big Okay. Thing. Okay. 
So like horse lifespans got it. It had just flown a flight from London Heathrow the night before. It okay. landed around 1 a.m. Okay? In Cyprus. Got it. In Cyprus. It was scheduled to leave Lenarca at 9 a.m. And it was going to fly to Athens, make a stop, and then on to Prague. The first leg of the flight was supposed to take about an hour and a half. So they planned, like I said, to land in Athens around 10.30 a.m., deplane some passengers, get fuel, continue to Prague. Solid. The captain was a 58-year-old German contract pilot hired by Helios just for the summer busy holiday season. Mm. So a contract pilot is someone who has a lot of experience in types of airplanes, is certified in that airplane, and they're just kind of like working for the company temporarily. Okay. But we're saying they have a lot of experience. Yeah. Okay. All right. He's 58. He's probably worked for an airline. He's retired and he's doing contract. He's just like, oh yeah, I'll work for you for a couple months. Right. But he's not like a temp. He's like seasoned. Yes. Well in it. Okay. All right. Very well trained pilot. He had a clean safety record. He'd been flying for 35 years. He had about 17,000 hours. About one third of all that time was actually in the Boeing 737. All right. So he knows his shit. Mm -hmm. Right? That's a lot of experience. I just say, I'm around 10,000 hours and I've been flying for 24 years. You know, I. Man was seeing some flights. uh, I know. I'm telling you, a lot of experience. So he had a first officer with him. The first officer, of course, also very experienced, 51 year old pilot, native of Cyprus. That guy had flown for Helios for the past five years. He had around 7,500 flight hours, 4,000 in the 737. Again, a very experienced pilot, clean safety record. Cool. Solid. A team on deck. What could go wrong? There were four flight attendants on board. The lead was a female, age 32. There was another female, 25. There was a 24-year-old female and a 25-year-old male. So they're all young. The 25-year-old male was actually dating the 24-year-old. So Is that relevant? So their boyfriend and girlfriend. I want girlfriend. it to be relevant. I want that scandal to be up in whatever's about to happen. So <laughs> it might be. We'll see what happens. So the aircraft today would be carrying about 115 passengers. It was certified to carry about 135. Okay. So it's some open seats. We're under. Yeah. Yeah, we're under. Some open seats. 115 passengers and a crew of six. The passengers included 67 people that were getting off in Athens with the remainder continuing on to Prague. The makeup of the crew, of the passengers was 93 adults, 22 children. 103 of the passengers were Cypriot natives, so natives of Cyprus, and 12 were Greek nationals. Okay. Let's see. The 737 had arrived, like I mentioned before, had arrived at Lanarka from London in the early AM hours that day, and the previous flight crew had reported a frozen door seal and abnormal noises coming from the right aft service door. Oh. So that's the door all the way in the back, basically in the galley, that they use to cater... The catering trucks will pull up and take carts out and put them in. Okay. It doubles as an emergency exit. Solid. But you don't board or deplane from that door. Right. That's, That's why they call it a service door. Okay? So it's frozen and making weird noises. Yes. They reported the noises to maintenance. They requested a, foreign, a full inspection of the door, which maintenance did, and they found no issues. But So what would happen in that? Like if, if the crew is telling you there's an issue, but they don't find anything. Sometimes the door seal can be slightly displaced when the door is closed, or it can be frozen, and if it's frozen, it may not hold the seal, and it would whistle. Yeah. That not, that's not necessarily a, a, an indication that it's that anything's wrong with it okay that it may be like oh the seal's a little worn it's within specs i love that i'm like 
grilling this inspection where I'm like, there's weird noises. It's frozen. My car could be in flames. I'll be like, it's fine. It's fine. It's a weird noise. It's fine. <laughs> but let's back up a moment and talk about that door. On December 16th of 2004, so we're nine months prior, right? We're August 14th, back to December 16th, the previous year. During a flight from Warsaw, Poland, back to Cyprus, the same aircraft experienced a rapid loss of cabin pressure, and the crew made an emergency descent and landing. On that flight, the flight attendants reported to the captain that there had been a loud bang from that same aft service door and that there was a hand size hole between the door and the door seal. Like hand size, like, like a you hole, could, like somebody punched through it, or no, you could like just you could slide put your, your, put your hand slide in. through your fingers in. Scandal. Well, no wonder the cabin pressure went down. We got a, hole. a hole in the door. Right. So the the Air Accident and Incident Investigation Board of Cyprus could not conclusively determine the cause of that incident, but they indicated two possibilities, either an electrical malfunction causing it They're to They're saying it's an electrical issue when it there could. is a hand-sized hole so in what, the door? So what they're saying is that the aircraft overpressurized because of an electrical issue that moves that valve in and out. So the pressure got too big and blew the door seal out and bent ah. the door. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, okay. But okay. they couldn't determine if it was an electrical malfunction that had caused the outflow valve to close and cause an overpressurization, or this is all I could find, an inadvertent opening of the aft service door. So I, I, I tried to look at this, to look up this event, but I really couldn't find anything on it. I don't know what the second thing means, inadvertent opening of the aft service door. Like, whoops. Like somebody turned the handle, I'm not sure. Yeah, like, oh, they were like, oh, we're mid-flight. I definitely want to open this door. Let's do that in here. But it's worth noting that there was some damage. The damage was then repaired. The aircraft was returned to service with no further issues, okay? Again, I'm grilling the check, the maintenance. I'm like, what's going on here with this door, people? Are we really looking at it the way we should? I agree. And the first officer is just with you. For five years, he worked on this airplane on and off. And each time he worked on this airplane, he had repeatedly complained to the captain and others, including his mom, about the aircraft getting cold and it was unable Mom's to... Mom's getting the tea. Like, they couldn't keep the cabin warm. That's wild. So the guy, like, it was written up. During the 10 preceding weeks to this, to the date we're talking about, the environmental control system was inspected seven times and repaired three times. I, Did I, they find an issue each time that somehow was not the thing? What are they fixing here? They keep repairing it, and it keeps getting written up, and they keep she's repairing ready. it. I think she's ready to go out to pasture. I think that they're probably being cheap and not replacing the component, but like using oh. a rebuilt component or or like, oh, no, it's okay. It's we've repaired it, but it's it's the original component, but we've repaired it now. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, me either. If you don't know it, I certainly don't know I'm it. I'm not exactly sure what they were repairing, but it was written up many times prior to our date today. Mm. Okay, so let's get back the to this The track guy. record is there. We're like this plain social worker. This is documented. <laughs> it is. It is. So let's get back to this day. The maintenance report that the previous crew had made resulted in an inspection which was carried out by an aircraft technician. But in this case, because there was a problematic aircraft, an actual engineer was involved um, due to the consistent write-ups. So not only did they have an aircraft technician, they actually had an aircraft engineer 
So they have mm. two sets of eyes looking at this airplane because they're saying, hey, this could be an issue. Yeah, for right? sure. Um, the maintenance personnel and the engineer inspected the door. They found no issued. They found no issues. They performed a pressurization leak check. And that means in order to carry out this check without turning on the airplane engines and taking it aloft, the pressurization system has to be set to manual. They have to pull some circuit breakers. And then they have to essentially simulate that it's pressurizing like it's in the air. Okay. Because they want to check the, the door seals and yeah. make, make sure it's not I leaking. I think everybody on that plane appreciates you want to check that. Absolutely. So they did this. They set the pressurization system to manual. They use the APU, which is a small jet engine in the back of a jet that starts that helps to start the engines. It can also provide air conditioning and electrical power. It's an auxiliary power. Mm-hmm. Okay. The test was good. They found no issues. The technician and the engineer, however, did not reset the pressurization panel. They left it in the manual mode. They did not reset it to auto on completing a completion of the test. There's an auto and a manual. They left it in manual. They did not reset it to auto. Dear Lord. That is actually really common, though. For when maintenance comes on an airplane, you get in and you check all the switch positions. And it's kind of like, I'm going to look for an Easter egg. Mm. As a pilot, we kind of... find what you all left behind. Exactly. As a pilot, we kind of know. You get on and like a switch that normally would stay in the on position is in the off position. Mm. It's not uncommon for that to happen. I'm just saying, if you are... If I'm going to get behind the wheel of my vehicle... And somebody has switched it from automatic to manual. I'm dead. Yeah. Yeah. But we go through. So our cockpit pre-flight inspections, you go through every switch and you cool. make sure it's set in the correct position. That's what cool. you do. That, that's part of our checks. Anyway, the pilots, the flight attendants, they got on the airplane. They completed their pre-flight checks. They got everything set up and the passengers got on board. They overlooked the pressurization system settings Yikes. twice during the pre-flight check. The pilots overlooked it twice. Now, what kind, What are we looking at here? This button, is it, what's it shaped like? Where it's does actually it sit? Just, it's actually just a knob. It sits over the head of the first officer, and it's a knob next to a bunch of other knobs. Turn it one way, it says auto. Turn it the other way, it says man. Okay. So it's turned to the man position. It should be turned to the auto position. Now, if it's in the manual position, you manually control the outflow valve with a switch which pressurizes or depressurizes the airplane. That's in case the automatic system doesn't fails. operate okay. or fails. Now you can control the pressurization yourself. In the auto position, it just does it by itself. Okay. It pressurizes correctly. It depressurizes correctly. So seemingly not impossible to fly in manual. All right. I got a picture for you, by the way. I'll post this on the Instagram. So let me show you this pressurization panel. And you'll see this sits above the first officer's head. Do you see where it says auto, oh, alternate, yeah. and manual? I'm glad you showed me this because I, yeah, I guess I could see it. I mean, there's a lot of switches up there. Right. Because but. like this auto and manual, this is, is this what we're talking about or this would not be? The round here? one. Yeah. Like this feels like visually I can see the difference between these two. Right. This one's tighter and I'm like, maybe, eh. maybe look it over. Yeah. But it's on the checklist. It's on the checklist. So they did miss it on the checklist. But this but this is some complacency and also just some bias. Like, you, ex- it never gets moved. It's expectation right. bias. You expect right. it to be in the same position. And I know I've done this. I have done this. There'll be a checklist item. 
and I will say, checked on. And my first officer look at me and go, that's off. Yeah. You've been flying for nine hours, you know, or it's the early ass morning. You have an expectation bias that is always in the same position. You look at it. Your brain just does not register that thing. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not defending them. I'm just saying I kind of get it. Like I understand that you can miss something even though because you're just expecting it to be mm-hmm. in that the routine, same place. That, that same thing. It never gets moved. Why would we? The only time we would move this switch to manual, essentially like an emergency or an abnormal, that the checklist told us to move it to manual. There's but they're no, made aware of the issues that they had at they 1 would a.m., have seen correct? It, yes. They would have seen that the aircraft was written up. So again... When you know maintenance has been on board, you really want to like look for the Easter egg. Yeah. How yeah. are you trying to get me here? Yeah. What am I missing? So again- I do understand that. I mean, I would imagine I look over things like that at work all the time, but my job doesn't require the safety of 165 people at one time. So. Right. Well, they missed the switch position. I showed you the switch. I'll post it to Instagram. And the, aer- the airplane took off. They missed it in the pre-flight check. They missed it in the after-start check. Once they started the aircraft and they were ready to take off, they took off at 9.07 with the switch still set to manual. The aft outflow valve was partially open. Then they missed the pressurization panel setting again on the after-takeoff checklist. Now it's getting a little ridiculous. So now they've missed it three times. Are they checking? Yeah, that's a really great question. Or are they just reading it? Yeah. Are they even looking at it? And it's two people. It's two people. And I like your first Oh, first person, officer. First off. Yeah. Yeah. What a good dude. Where you're right. like, cool. And he's like, not cool, bro. Not cool. Exactly. Like, it's like proofreading for some... Actually, I really enjoy proofreading for that reason, where I'm not necessarily reading for the substance of it. I'm just looking for the grammatical errors and the spelling errors. Okay. So that's actually a really good... That's a good equivalency. Like when you get in an airplane after maintenance, yeah, that's kind of the brain, the switch that needs to switch in your brain. You're like, I'm not taking this airplane flying. I'm not in the, we're going to go fly mode. I'm in the, I'm going to search for the problem mode. Yes. And then after you find a problem or don't find a problem, now you can change your mindset a little bit and go, okay, now I'm going to set it up to fly. Yeah, yeah. Right. Especially because you got three checks in there. You do. And two of them are before you even take off. So I feel like, yeah, get your proofreader out because that's your first run at it. So now the outflow valve that's supposed to close after you take off and then it's supposed to vary electronically, it holds the pressure in the cabin. Keeps it from overpressurizing, keeps it from underpressurizing. It's just about halfway. It's just at a fixed halfway position. An outflow valve is not a small valve. We think of a valve. This is more like a 12 by 12 inch door. That's a huge valve. That's a big valve, right? It it opens and closes. It's a door that opens and closes. It's not really a valve. We call it a valve. It is a door that opens and closes. If it opens, pressure comes out of the cabin, making the altitude climb in the cabin. If it closes, pressure increases in the cabin, essentially making the altitude in the cabin lower. So we're at a halfway mark here. We're kind of halfway. So we're not thinking anything at this point. No, it's just it's just sitting at halfway. So what happened was that as the air- aircraft climbed, the pressure inside the cabin gradually decreased because the pressure that the engines were putting into the cabin was just dumping out through the partially because opened nobody's outflow working valve. the valve. Yeah, nobody's either manually working it, which is what you'd have to do in this position, yeah. or turn it to auto, let it. So that's work my itself. next question, like. 
is there a point where you get to flip the switch mid-flight, or would you have to ground the plane to turn it to auto? No, you could flip it anytime. Really? Yeah. All right. So, so we're only now just starting to notice an issue. Yes. So as Helios 522, which is the flight number, passed through an altitude of 12,000 feet, the cabin altitude warning horn started sounding, and it starts to buzz. So it's a buzzer, and it goes, meh. Me, me, and that's, that's just it. in the cockpit. We're not hearing that as... No, as, nowhere else. Okay, all right. It's just all right. in the cockpit. That buzzer is meant to tell the crew that the cabin altitude is too high. The warning should have prompted the crew to stop climbing, but here's where the Boeing part gets a little weird. But that horn was misidentified by the crew as the takeoff configuration warning horn, and I'm going to tell you what this means in a second. But the reason it was misidentified misidentified is because those two alerts share the same sound oh no they do come on i know and there's no light to tell the difference so let's imagine you're driving down the road in your car and you hear a bing you look up on the dash it's the same bing whether your check engine light came on or whether you have a low tire okay it's that same bing but the car tells you yeah. Okay. There is kind of a way that the pilot should have known because the takeoff configuration horn can only sound when the aircraft is on the ground. And it's meant to alert them that the aircraft is not in takeoff configuration, which means oh. it doesn't have the fl- correct flap setting or the trim isn't set correctly. So if it's in flight, they can't assume that that's what it is. If it's in flight, it's always going to be the pressurization. Okay, but, so they know this. But they thought it was a malfunctioning takeoff configuration. Horn. Why? Why not, would the assumption to be that know. it's not doing its job? You're not doing your job. Exactly. So Don't blame the technology. So they think that it's a malfunctioning takeoff configuration warning horn. They misidentify it when the truth is it's actually doing exactly what it should yes, be doing. Yes, it is literally doing the only it's thing saying, it's supposed to right, be doing. That's it. It's got one job. It's, it's doing its job. It's got one job. So the warning like I said, should have prompted the crew to stop climbing, but it was misidentified. Now, newer models have a light in addition to a horn that differentiates. The horn is still the same, but there's a light now. So if you hear the horn, you can look up and you can see either takeoff configuration warning or cabin altitude. Okay, well, that's a good improvement. I'm not mad at that, but... So like I said, the big the big takeaway here is the takeoff configuration horn can only sound when the aircraft is on the ground... But like I said, it's the same alert. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, boy. In the next few minutes, several warning lights on the overhead panel in the cockpit illuminated while the horn continued to buzz. Both of the equipment cooling lights, warning lights, came on to indicate that there was low airflow going through the cooling fans to cool the equipment. There was low airflow because there was low pressure in the cabin, so the fans can't blow very much air. It's basically a little switch that goes, hey, there's not enough air, so the switch clicks down and turns on the light. So we have several warnings going off here. Right. The passenger oxygen light came on because the oxygen masks dropped at 14,000 feet. Seems, seems appropriate. The passenger oxygen masks came down. Yeah. They dropped at 14,000 feet. And the light that tells the pilots, hey, the oxygen masks dropped, that came on. Is that like an embarrassing moment for a pilot when the oxygen masks drop down? Because like at this point, we're in the back of the plane. 
Oh I've my got goodness. my Chardonnay. I'm balls deep in whatever I'm going to watch for exactly. the hour I'm in this flight. Yep. And I don't know. There, I don't hear an alarm. And you all have everything at your disposal in this moment to think that there could be something wrong. And now we're aware. We're like, oh, damn. Now the passengers are aware. Are, but yeah. remember that this is 2005. So we are post 9-11. Yeah. There's a ballistic door between the pilots and the cabin. And they don't know what's going on back there besides the light or the flight attendant calling them. So the flight attendants didn't call so them. So what are they doing? So they've they've written off I'm the actually, horn. Yep. And they've, I'm I'm actually about to tell you. So the captain calls Helios Operations Center. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this is pretty shortly after takeoff. They're still on that initial climb. And he reports that the takeoff configuration warning horn is on. And that the cooling equipment normal and alternates are offline. We just talked about that. The fans aren't moving any air because mm-hmm. there's not enough air to move. So he's and on the phone with customer service figuring basically out Basically, he's wrong. on the radio yep. mm-hmm. trying to figure out what's wrong. Ironically, the captain was speaking to the same engineer that had worked on the aircraft the night before. No, no, I'm sorry. He didn't work on the, air, on the aircraft the night before. They did the pressurization test early that morning. Okay, but he was still the engineer then. He's same the that. engineer. Okay. Same engineer. So... So the captain repeats a little bit confusedly. He says, cooling ventilation, fan lights, on. Okay. The engineer then asks, can you confirm the pressurization panel is set to auto? He knew. He read the symptoms. He read the symptoms. And the captain ignored that call. (gasps) Stop. Stop. Fourth time. Yep. He ignored the call. Though we know he heard it because it was on the cockpit voice recorder. The captain was fixated on the equipment cooling lights that were illuminated. And the engineer repeated the question about the pressurization system being in auto. And again, the question was ignored because the captain was already experiencing early onset hypoxia. Oh, shoot. What's hypoxia? Hypoxia is where the pressure in the atmosphere drops to a certain point and the density of the air drops to a certain point that you are unable to get enough oxygen to power your body. Oh, goodness. So some of the early onset symptoms of essentially lack of oxygen to the brain are confusion, general cognitive dysfunction, ringing in ears, tunnel vision. Oh. The captain is suffering from early symptoms. What about the first officer? What's he doing? We don't hear him. Why don't we hear him? I'm not sure. He's already getting hypoxia. He again ignores the question and he responds with, where are my equipment cooling circuit breakers? So he's very fixated on these equipment cooling fans. He's tunneled. It's the only thing he can think about. tunnel vision on these. Absolutely. It's like when you're wasted. On these equipment cooling fans. Right, exactly. Had he reached and turned the pressurization to auto, it would have fixed every problem. Everything would have... Everything would have gone away. So, unfortunately, this is the last transmission that came (gasps) from the pilots. This is always, like, the tragic part in this, right? Is, like, that, what's the last communication? But But this one's a little bit different because the autopilot was still on. Okay. So, Helios 522 continues to climb. Very bad because... Hypoxia only gets worse. Oh, it's not going to get any yeah, better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Also, with the flight deck door being a ballistic door, the passengers and the flight attendants are unable to get into the cockpit. Remember, they're back there. They have oxygen on. Yes. Oh, so they're the fully aware fell. and they're safe. But they can't get in the cockpit at all. No. The flight attendants can't open it. No. Is it still like that? There is a key to get into the flight deck. 
And one of the flight okay. attendants knows where the key is. It's a hidden key. Okay. Well, that makes me happy now. Okay. I wish there had been a key then. There was. <gasps> so the passengers and the flight attendants, they're unable to get into the cockpit. To make matters worse, the passenger oxygen comes from individual oxygen generators, chemical oxygen generators. They last for 12 minutes. Okay. The reason the units last for 12 minutes is in case you have a sudden depressurization, like we said with Alaska Airlines, uh -huh. you put on your oxygen mask, the pilots initiated descent, and 12 minutes of oxygen is enough. Yeah, you're but not, we're not gonna going to be down. We're going up. We're going up. Yeah. We're going the wrong way. We, we're not stopping the airplane from climbing. So in 12 minutes, Everybody all the passengers runs out of oxygen. run out of oxygen. Yeah. I'm so, smiling. I don't know why. I think oh this is my goodness. so tragic. It is. So we talked about why it's 12 minutes. Well, Helios 522 climbs until it levels off at 34,000 feet. That was initial cruise altitude. Oh, yeah, they yeah, have yeah. that set. The autopilot climbs up, levels off, knows exactly what it's doing. Oh. Auto, auto throttles set themselves. It's flying its route. Oh, God. The pilots are not needed at this point. Well, okay? good, because they're not available. 34,000 feet, 10,000 meters or so. Between 9.30 and 9.40, that's about 30 to 40 minutes into the flight. <laughs> and Nicosia ATC, which is in Greece, repeatedly attempts to contact Helios 522, but they never have any success. At 9.37, the aircraft passed out of Cyprus airspace and into Athens airspace without making contact with Athens. Oh my goodness. And remember that this is after 9.11. So the airplane is... Now heading towards Athens, so it's definitely seen as a threat. Athens is a very populated city. No contact with the pilots. Aircraft heading toward the city. Yeah. So but have they have the towers communicated? Has Cyprus communicated to Athens? Like, coming in hot, can't make contact. Right. Nicosa does call, and nobody can get them. Athens Control makes 19 attempts to contact the aircraft without success. And at 1040, this is an hour later... Oh, my God. And everybody's out without oxygen. They're just gone. After an hour of not talking to the airplane, the 737-300 enters a holding pattern over Athens Airport. What does that mean, a holding pattern? So a holding pattern is the racetrack pattern. So yeah, you just fly in you the get to a fix and, and you just basically fly in an oval shape. Because autopilot can't take it any further. Because that's called what's called a clearance limit. So they had a hold programmed in there as their clearance limit. And the autopilot was like, well, you wanted me to hold. Now the airplane will hold forever. Oh my God, until it runs out of gas. Well, it runs out, out of fuel. Sky. So at this point, the Greek military decided to intervene, believing that it may be a possible terrorism incident. Okay. Oh my God, I and, hate all of this. And at 11.05, two F-16s from Hellenic Air Force were scrambled to get visual contact with the 737-300. They intercept the passenger jet in the holding pattern at 11.25 a.m. They pull up extremely close to the 737. The F-16 tucks itself on top of the left <gasps> wing. So the pilot literally is meters away from the cockpit. Oh so he my can, goodness, so the pilot, I didn't even know this was possible. So the F-16 just tucks itself down, literally looks over. Oh no. Probably the length of its wingspan, only a few meters away. And what they found was the first officer is slumped motionless over the controls. Oh. Okay, but the captain is the captain's seat is empty. Is empty? It's empty. So they also report that oxygen masks were dangling in the passenger in the passenger cabin. 
because mm-hmm. we knew that. Yeah. They could also see some passengers slumped over with their oxygen masks on. Oh, God. They ran out of oxygen. Because, yeah, we've been up there forever now. Right. Forever. The F- they got 12 minutes. The F-16s established themselves off of the wings of the aircraft and they just watch it. By now, they know how much fuel because they talked to Helios Dispatch. Yeah. They know how much fuel is on board the airplane. They know they know how much longer it could hold. But they are concerned that if it ran out of fuel facing yeah. Athens, that they would have to shoot it down because oh they God. don't want it to crash yeah. into the city, obvious death and destruction right. to the people on the ground. What a horrific scene. That's it. But then, much to the surprise of the flight crew, at 11.49 a.m., the 25-year-old male flight attendant enters the cockpit. What? He's and alive? he has a supplemental oxygen bottle slung over his shoulder, and he sits down in the captain's seat. You're kidding. Nope. Get out of here. So Romeo of Romeo and Juliet is yep. coming in to save the day. 25-year-old flight attendant kicking it with the 24-year-old flight attendant is like, here, hold my beer. I'm Tom Cruise. Let's make this happen. So this is this is a supplemental oxygen bottle or in other terms, a therapeutic oxygen bottle. And we would use these bottles for passengers under duress. So how long, like, where are we at? Like, where are we at in time? So it's 11.49 a.m. They took off at 9.07. So what has he been doing this whole time? We're not sure. Okay. The They think that he... Came to. Like he got sick and then all of a sudden was like, there's this thing. Let me try and get it. Right. That he kind of like came back a bit and was able to to have some wits about him and get a therapeutic oxygen bottle. We know he got that therapeutic oxygen bottle. And now the therapeutic oxygen bottle has a significant amount of oxygen in it. So not 12 minutes. No, not 12 minutes. It has a, it's a, it's a cylinder and it's about, you know, two and a half feet long. It carries enough oxygen for therapeutic oxygen. And there are several of these bottles on board. Oh man, there's several? Yeah. So is he the only one with one? But he's the only one. What about his love interest? What about Juliet? We don't see her. Uh, so his name is Andreas. And get this. Andreas held a commercial pilot's license issued to him by the UK government. Because why wouldn't he? You know? Right. A commercial pilot's license allows a person to fly for money, but they're not an air transport pilot. So think about like somebody who tows banners over the beach or is an aerial photographer um, that does like survey work on the ground Mm -hmm. or um, maybe flies tiny charters, tiny small charter airplanes. Mm -hmm. To be a flight instructor, you have to have a commercial pilot's license. Got it. Because that is what allows you to get paid to do it. Okay. All right, Andreas. But he's not qualified to fly a 737. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're talking total upgrade here. This is a total different machine than he's ever sat. Then he's really, I mean, he may have seen the inside of this because he's a flight attendant, mm-hmm, but, they, mm-hmm. but he does not fly these airplanes. It's like being a dental hygienist and somebody's like, could you do heart surgery? Right, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. That, 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 is, that is pretty accurate. Each airline, like we talked about before, requires about four to six weeks of school and a whole certification check. In fact, multiple checks. He's not certified to fly this particular model, but he sees the F-16s and he actually waves at them. I'm glad he is. He waves at them with his hands. Okay, he's not waving like, hi. He's not like a Forrest Gump (laughs) wave. He's like waving his hands. Only two minutes after sitting down at the controls, 
the left engine flames out due to fuel exhaustion. Oh, no. Okay. The airplane can no longer hold its altitude, so it starts to descend in holding. So it's spiraling so it's downward go, So it's like flying a, a racetrack pattern, okay. but it cannot stay where it is. So it's just spiraling down. This is what we call drift Damn down. Damn, my goodness. Now, if it has I'm enough sweating. fuel, if it has enough fuel, it's going to drift down to around... 20 ish thousand feet maybe to it's tw- at 34 now yeah so it's gonna drift down to about twenty thousand, but it's still gonna be in the holding pattern so he has to do something yeah yeah, yeah. he has to do something but here's what he sees he sees that the aircraft is in threat of hitting the city and he knows that's not a good thing mm. so he turns off the autopilot but- and he turns the aircraft away from the city and into the countryside So he turns away from the airport and he goes directly to the countryside, okay? He has basic flying experience, but he can't fly a 737. But he can control it, but he's never going to be able to land it. so sad. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the F-16s follow Helios 522 um, as it runs on its right engine. What if he aimed for like the water? I mean, that could be a appropriate ditching i'm Wait, not sure could you could he like coast into the water at all or no he's like potentially he's never gonna be able to land this thing in any scenario potentially but the f-16s follow helios 522 as again it's running on its right engine tracking across the greek countryside away from the city mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. there's still a tiny chance that andreas could save it as you pointed yeah. out but then 10 minutes after the Left engine flames oh, no. out. The right engine flames no! out. No, no. Okay. Just after noon that day, so they were they took off at nine oh seven. It's like twelve oh three. Oh my god. So the airplane has been up. It's only supposed to make an hour and a half flight. It's yeah. been up for yeah hours, a- almost three, just shy of three she's hours. Lit. <sighs> she's yeah, lit. she's right. Andreas still at the controls. F mm-hmm. 16s still following it. Helios 522 crashes into a hillside oh my God. Um, near Grammatico, which is 25 miles, 40 kilometers from Athens, kills everybody on board, 121 passengers and six. Crew. Oh, no. Andreas, I you know. saved the city. He did. It really is he part did. of the Spider-Man franchise. <laughs> so it's double wide. So what actually happened? You know that. Unlike many of my episodes, this one is actually pretty straightforward. Yeah, I feel like we are very aware of what happened here. The Greek authorities found that the flight crew overlooked the checklist item three times. Okay? That resulted in a failure to properly pressurize the aircraft and ultimately caused the crew to become incapacitated due to hypoxia. Okay? That's what the direct cause was. But there's a little bit more to the story. So the story... So when I was reading the report, there's a lot of contributing factors. And there's some really interesting ones. First, the authorities looked at the company. And they found that the operator had deficiencies in their organization, quality management, and their safety culture. That was documented findings in several safety audits that they had had. So So it's a systemic issue. It's like everybody's scooting by. Everybody's doing the. They're 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 going with emotions. But this is the problem with capitalism, especially when it. This is one problem with one problem. (laughs) Especially when it applies to airlines, is they are going to do the bare minimum because minimum maximizes profit. If they had treated everything as 
an organization should, they may not be profitable. Mm-hmm. They may have to go out of business. Right. But in order to stay in business, they cut corners, which means degrading oh, safety, yeah, yeah. Co- d- degraded safety, co- safety culture, which means deficiency in, in management, et cetera. The big one here is the failure of the maintenance personnel to the return the aircraft to a known configuration after maintenance was performed. We pointed that out earlier. Absolutely. Hey, if you put the switch in that position, put it back. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This has touched several hands at this point, but also, like, I'm sorry. It's the first officer and the pilot, I feel like, have the biggest oh, yes. piece to play Definitely. in this. Because it's, yeah, it's it's your flight at that time. You take over ownership of this plane. The government also found that Boeing was at fault. Because of the horn thing? Yep. All right. I mean, I'm not mad about it. Again, it's like the warning that says this beverage is hot, you know, when you know you're knowingly handling exactly. a hot beverage. Exactly. But yeah, I think that I'm holding, if I had to put percentages, I'm going to say 15% Boeing. There was, there's a number associated, but they settled out of court with the victim's families and we don't know what the number is. Uh. But the authorities found that Boeing had an ineffective, had an ineffective and inadequate response to known previous pressurization incidents in this same type of aircraft. So what they're telling us is something similar to this happened before Oh, and Boeing didn't make any changes where they were confused by the alarm so this means that the cabin altitude learning system was flawed providing only that single shared tone and no additional warning lights which i found shocking because i fly the 737 and there are lights there due to this crash boeing installed differentiation lights but the same horn but still but two lights but two lights yes so when the horn goes off you can look up and it'll say cabin altitude or it'll say takeoff configuration. Okay. I mean, I'm not mad about this improvement. I think that most solutions are layered. They're not a singular, you know, so that if there is something that can be done that helps prevent this in the future, fantastic. Why not take those steps to make that happen? And Boeing also, and the government also said that Boeing checklists were not good enough to address this type of issue because the one of the first things on the checklist now, if those cooling lights are on, is pressurization in auto, where previous to this, the cooling lights, it was going to be like, oh, well, turn it to alternate. It was going to assume that the fans had failed or something else was wrong with the cooling system, where now that cooling checklist... They're connected. Yeah. Now that cooling checklist is item Got one, it. is the pressurization system on. If so... improvements. Right. We're supposed it, to learn is, from our mistakes. And we talked about this, right? So... 2021, 2022, 2023, right. safest years in aviation history. Yeah. These are all incremental steps to get there. But they additionally found that flight attendant training given to all European operators was insufficient because when the masks dropped, the flight attendants didn't call the pilots. Yeah, I feel like that's strange. Like, we need to be making contact. That step alone may have saved the entire flight because that's hard to ignore the flight attendant saying, hey, the masks dropped back here. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. You got the pressurization horn going off and the flight attendant calling you going, the masks dropped. Is there any level of intimidation between the flight attendants and the pilots? Like, would they at all be like, I don't want to bother them with Not this in, trivial You know, I can't, address, I can't address that culture um, yeah. from 2005. I can't, uh, and especially with a charter operator... I think that that is probably one of the 
insufficient cultural norms that they had at the company Mm -hmm. was maybe the flight attendants didn't talk to the pilots or weren't supposed to or whatever. Yeah. There's also a sterile cockpit light. It's basically a blue light that tells the flight attendants when the pilots are in sterile, which turns on below 10,000 feet, so that the flight attendants don't make non-appropriate calls to them. What does that mean in sterile? Like it's... Don't... So it's a critical phase of flight below 10,000 feet. So Mm -hmm. the flight attendant's not going to call us and go, hey, you know that it's a little cool here in the back. Yeah. Or maybe it's, can you warm it up back here a little bit? Or can you call maintenance when we get on the ground because somebody puked in, you know, row 20? Yeah. But oxygen masks feels like something. That's critical. Yeah. Okay. We don't know if the sterile cockpit light was on or off. So okay. we're not sure. But even if it was on. But even if it was on, they should, still could have called. Yeah. That was a finding. The flight attendants should have called. So the Cyprus government grounded all the 737s operated by Helios the day after this accident. But on August 29th, 2005, Helios announced successful safety checks on their Boeing fleet. They put them all back in service. Then Helios changed its name to AJET. My goodness. But a year later, and due to criminal and civil suits, criminal prosecution on the part of some people, the authorities in Cyprus detained the company's aircraft. They froze all their assets and their bank accounts. The airline announced it would stop operating on October 31st of 2006. So a year later, they were out. They were out. The crash victims' families filed several class action lawsuits. And like I said, they settled with Boeing out of court. So we don't know what Boeing paid them. They also sued Helios, but there were no assets left. Mm, so yeah. there's so there, essentially there's a pending award, but there's no money to satisfy the award. They also sued the government of Cyprus for poor oversight. Mm. That case is still pending today. Oh my goodness. It's coming up on a 20-year anniversary soon. Oh, so I now know. what do we know what the grounds were? That like w- at what point would Cyprus be accountable? No idea. No idea. It just seems crazy that it's just still pending. Yeah. 20 years later. 20 years. Ugh. I mean, I I'm just I'm wondering what is you know, the force behind that argument that they want to continue it for 20 years. Right, right. So the burning question is always, could this happen today? Yeah, I mean, it's human error. Yeah, it is. It could happen today. I would think that it could happen today, but only with extreme negligence on the part of the crew. Now, I say that, but that's what happened. I was, uh, Yeah, I'm like, it was extreme negligence from the beginning. It was. It was negligence on the part of maintenance. It was mm-hmm. negligence on the part of the crew missing the checklist item three times and then when they were directed to turn the yeah. system to auto captain ignored it probably hypoxia but still an, a serious yeah. issue um, but human error for, on so many ways that's a pilot a first officer and four flight attendants that made no contributing factors to the demise of the flight when it was within their power the whole time the so whole time. i just I know it could happen again for that reason. So the other reason it could happen is the system is the same. Like we talked about Boeing's 737. Yeah. It's the same system. Mm-hmm. They added a light, but the system is the same. Right. So there's not really anything to keep but somebody I don't know from that putting that's that in. Boeing's fault. I, I mean... I know. I, I, I struggle with that too. It's never not... As long as we have pilots, you have the influence of human error. And you, not just a pilot, like anybody in that position to put the aircraft in the position it is to be held without 
cabin pressure. I mean, you really do. And the problem is, if you say now that that's Boeing's fault, and then a pilot maybe turns off the auto throttle system and pulls the levers to idle, is that now Boeing's fault that the airplane crashes because they didn't put power in? Like, where does it? Where where does right? That where's slope, the line? Where's the line? Where's that? Where is that slippery slope stop? Right. Oh, this system has to be auto, and now this system has to be auto. And now if this one doesn't, you know, there's a there's a line at which also you... like this plane is not a spring chicken, has a very spotty maintenance check. Is Boeing still accountable when we've sold you the plane? You are operating the plane. You are in charge of its maintenance. No. It's not a lifetime warranty. No, it's not a lifetime warranty. It's, and not, it's not like they sold you a lemon and this all just started to appear. And there's also bigger training questions like Boeing made the plane, but then all the pilots were checked out on that aircraft. They were certified. They were certified by their independent government agencies, by their company agencies. Everybody passed the checks to be on that plane. So at what point do you go... Okay, we built an airplane with a flaw, but you passed the check with the flaw. You knew. You got educated on the system. You knew what the horn meant. But if it's known, it's not a flaw. Right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, right. it's not like they were like, uh, it gets stuck in auto, but really it's in manual. No, you didn't toggle the switch, which was your responsibility the correct to way, do. And the horn went off exactly as it should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, but Boeing fixed the problem and then they released a new checklist and they made... They, which I'm happy made, for. Yeah, I am. Absolutely. I'm just not going to say that at the end of the day, it was Boeing's responsibility. I do believe there were things within their power they could do to make it better. I hate that people had to die, though. Absolutely. I mean, that would be the scariest thing to be a passenger and be Ugh. like, the oxygen mask came down 10 minutes ago. We're still climbing. Nobody said but they anything. they don't know that. That's like, I wouldn't have known that. As us as passengers, we don't know that those oxygen masks only have 12 minutes in them. I That's assume true. the flow of oxygen is for as long as I need it. So if we're continuing to climb, you're telling me we're good. I'm not thinking anything different. We're little children back there. We're relying it's on the true. adult to, to get us where we need to be. It's true. And you would think that the smartest person in the room would be the flight attendant at that point because the pilots right. are not, they're separate, physically separated. Absolutely. So, and and what do the flight attendants do? They don't, they didn't call the flight deck and say, hey, we have an issue. They, Apparently they didn't, they didn't even know about these reserve oxygen masks either. So it, three people were also dead knowing full well, quote, uh, there's a quotes, knowing full well there were alternative sources of oxygen. You asked about the girlfriend and boyfriend. Yeah, yeah. So there was an article right after this happened that said that the girlfriend and boyfriend entered the cockpit. Interesting. So there was like a Is little... Is there any like, evidence of that? Well, they went and asked the F-16 pilots and the F-16 pilots said, that no, that's absolutely not true. So there was like this quick flash in the pan of... Oh, these two people were there, but... She was never there. But she was never there. Yeah. She was never in the cockpit. So Andreas was waving. He was making his presence No, I think what happened is Andreas got his therapeutic oxygen bottle. He found the key to the cockpit. Yeah. He went in. He dragged the captain out of the seat. And that's when the F-16 comes. Really? Because the, it didn't... This the would F -16 be my thought. F-16 saw the pilot slumped and then saw nobody in the captain's seat. Correct. So what they would have seen Andreas in that time that he was there. I guess they would have, and they could also see, because the shades were up. Yeah. They could also see into 
portions at least of the cabin. So it, it does raise a question of where did the captain go and where was Andreas the whole time? Yeah. Yeah, I think that yeah, I think your first assessment of he was out and then came to and secured and maybe came back. I don't know what it's like to have oxygen sickness in any way and just come back. But. So, so when they did the investigation on the human portion, basically they did autopsies on the human portion. Oh yeah, all of the passengers were alive when the aircraft crashed. You're kidding me. They were asleep. They were alive, but they were asleep. Oh, this is a whole new level here. Okay, so yeah, of course Andreas made it out. Of course he got his oxygen because he knew where it was. If everybody else is alive and just unconscious. They're unconscious. Everybody's unconscious. (gasps) Oh my God, that's so sad. Wait, also, like, how did they crash at such a low impact where there were bodies to autopsy? I'm assuming disintegration, everybody's out. So the aircraft was moving more slowly because it only had one engine operating. It was moving at a certain, it was gliding now. by the end. It was gliding. And it wasn't, so it wasn't pointing down. Yeah. And it had no fuel. So no, oh, so nothing, no post-impact yeah. fire. And wow. that's how we have an idea that the people were alive. Got it. Oh my gosh. There's just something. I can't speak. The whole thing is creepy, the, but this idea of these oh, just know. asleep people. Say the, so they call this, so they call this a ghost plane. So it <gasps> yeah. happens, it has happened a, a, one other time that I know of and I'll look up. I'll cover that incident another time, but they call that a ghost plane. Wow. Where that's the so people chilling. are unconscious or, or dead. Yeah. And the airplane is still flying because it doesn't require its pilots. It's programmed. Right. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. But Andreas, my guy. You, I know. He just like, you know, in the franchise, he's like the Iron Man, just taking that thing out and getting it out of everybody's way. And exactly. Going down with it. Exactly. He went oh, down with it. How Not going to go toward Athens. We're going to point away. That's insane. I can't imagine being in that scenario and like, you know, this idea of you're basically brain dead and then you come back and you just have enough awareness to be like, whatever this is, isn't good. Let's get out of the way. Right. What would have been extremely traumatic is if one of those F-16 pilots had to shoot down a jetliner. Yeah. Oh, there's nothing happy about this story. It's all creepy and unsettling. But yeah, the fact that it it literally could have been so much worse and uh, traumatizing. It could have been more traumatizing. Not that it isn't traumatizing, but yes, yeah. it's it's just a very interesting story in general. Yes. Miss a small thing and everybody was alive. Mm-hmm. Had Andreas even flipped that switch? Imagine. No, nah, there's no world he would no. have, but still. No. Oh, no. man. So that's the, that's the whole incident. Like I wow. said, it wasn't too long. It's a visual that lives with you now. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So my main source was the Hellenic Republic Ministry of Transport and Communications Air Accident Investigation and Aviation Safety Board Official Accident Investigation Report. Okay. Oh, that was a lot. I'm glad you read that and I didn't. The Greeks made a report. That's it. That's the whole thing. I read the report. It's basically like the NTSB report that Mm -hmm. the U.S. does. I read a New York Times article. I read an article from the Medium. I read the Greek Herald. I read the Cyprus Mail. I read the Guardian, and I used Wikipedia to find those sources. Wow. You did your research. Yeah. You got any more questions? I mean, honestly, I could find some, but I'm just going to let it marinate. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, we'll catch you next time. So thanks for being on. I thanks for I having very me. very much appreciate it again. And uh, this will be out in a couple of days. See you in three years. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye.